This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Think back to your earliest video game memories. Whether it's Donkey Kong, Final Fantasy IV, or Animal Crossing, when was the last time you played those games? And what are the odds that you still own the original console that you played it on? According to a 2023 study by the Video Game History Foundation, 87% of video games released before 2010 are endangered. That means they can't be purchased or played on modern consoles, or they've been lost to time entirely. Unlike movies, television shows, and music, accessing classic video games can be difficult, and it often depends on the hardware you own. So what happens when titles become unplayable? For this edition of Game Mode, that's our series where we cover video games in the gaming industry, we're discussing the efforts being made to preserve classic video games. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Joining us to discuss disappearing games is Frank Cifaldi. He's the founder and director of the Video Game History Foundation. Frank, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. With us in studio is Game Mode regular James Mastro Marino. He's gaming lead at NPR and a producer at Here and Now. James, it's great to have you back. Great to be here. And Rebecca Valentine is with us, also a Game Mode regular and senior reporter at IGN. That's a video game and entertainment media website. Rebecca, welcome back. Howdy. So, Frank, your organization, the Video Game History Foundation, found that the classic video game market is in a dire state. 87% of classic games in this country are out of print. Why did you even do this study? You know, um, that's a really interesting question. Um, First of all, no one had ever done a study like this. It's something that I think inherently a lot of us in the video game industry understand, that that most of the past is not generally available. But um, we were specifically pushed to issue this study um, as a form of trying to soften copyright laws around how institutions and libraries like ours um, can offer access to classic games. Um, Essentially, 
we are looking for an exemption um, in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act uh, to allow libraries to offer remote access um, to video games, which is something we can't currently do, even though we can do that for uh, other mediums like, like books and film and music. We'll get into the copyright law of it all a little bit later. The Video Game History Foundation defines classic games as games made before 2010. How did you arrive at that year? Well, we kind of assumed that once you hit 2010, um, that's kind of the Wild West days of, uh, you know, the iPhone putting out like 30,000 games a day, you know. So like, like it really was kind of a practical cutoff point, but also... I think just inherently, uh, 2010 feels like a, a, a shift in terms of what we might consider classic or not. Well, and beyond the the time, how did you figure out which games you wanted to consider for the study? Oh, um, we actually just, uh, we looked at all games um, published before 2010. So we did a uh, random sampling of 1,500 games from... Uh, by using a, a website called Moby Games, which is which is kind of the biggest database online of of published video game titles, um, and we use that that sampling um, to to represent the entirety of it. Um, if we were to actually look at literally every video game, I think we'd still be working on the study. Mm. Rebecca, when we talk about a game becoming endangered, what factors lead to that? There, there are many of them, and I'm sure I'm sure Frank will catch me on several that I, I forget about. But I, th- I think the big one, the one that uh, we tend to think about the most, is technology. Video games are so dependent on technology being available to actually allow you to play them, and you, it, it's not like a library where you can you can go to a library and you can pick up a copy of a book that you know was written however long ago and just open it and read it right there. With a video game, you you generally in, pretty much every case, have to put it into some other device and play it. And that means you have to have access to that device. And those devices are increasingly old, increasingly expensive. Um, And also because it's technology, both the game itself and whatever device it is you're playing it on can degrade. And so there's, there's games that are very old that are, you know, circulated on floppy disks or CDs that are, are not especially playable anymore. Uh, so there's, there's all these technological factors that cause games to vanish uh, for whatever reason. And that's not even getting into the fact that a lot of games are not even available physically. Mm-hmm. They're starting to become digital only. James, what options do people have to play these endangered games? Uh, it depends on what you're willing to do. Um, <laughs> the answer is, of the 87% that we talked about that are just out of print, like many of them are hosted online there are ways to download them. There are ways to play them. It's all difficult and, and can be connected to piracy. There are also many reissues. So when we talk about Atari, the makers of Pong, they actually just came out with something called the Atari 2600 Plus, which is a version of their home console from the 1980s. And it can actually run a lot of the old cartridges. It comes with reissues of games like Missile Command. I actually did a story with here and now host Scott Tong, where he uh-huh. relived his Missile Command days <laughs> on air with us. So... There is a recognition by many in the industry that people really want to play these games. The question is, apart from like the most famous ones, uh, there are very few ways to access them unless you're willing to bend some laws. Okay. Really quick round robin. I want to hear from each of you. If you if you had to play one classic game, right, you only had access to one, what would that game be, Frank? Well, um, I'm, I'm thinking in practical terms now, like it has to last me. Like this is kind of a desert <laughs> island scenario, yeah. right? Um, 
I, I, I'd have to think a little bit more about which specific version, but I'm going to go Tetris. I feel like Tetris is something that I can play every day. Rebecca, what about for you? I'm a big Pokemon fan. I think I'd be sad if I could never play Pokemon Crystal again. <laughs> James? Well, there's this game that came out on the in the 90s. It was like a kid's adventure game called Orly's Draw a Story that I keep on thinking about. It's not the sort of thing, like as Frank said, that I'd play forever on a desert island. But I just haven't been able to figure out a really good way to play this because it was about this Jamaican girl telling stories and you could literally illustrate creatures and characters that would show up as you played through the story time after time. And it's one of those classic titles that just so captured my imagination growing up that now I'm just kind of left feeling bereft. (laughs) I have to say, and I don't know if this was ever on a console or not. I always played it in arcades with Centipede. Like Centipede, something about the the sort of terror (laughs) that game induces as the Centipede got closer and closer to the bottom. Ah, brings back good memories. Now, James, we've seen digital media take center stage when it comes to streaming films and television. Best Buy recently announced they'd stop selling DVDs and Blu-rays in stores, but will continue to sell video games. How big is the market for physical video games? It's pretty, well, it's diminishing because more and more people are pushed into buying games digitally. I think I saw a statistic, something like 90% of all video games are bought digitally now, uh, download-only platforms. But the fact is a lot of gamers are very aware that they don't actually own the rights to a game indefinitely. If you buy something from Xbox or Steam or PlayStation, you really just have a lease to play the license. And they can revoke it at almost any time. Uh, so there is a big emphasis for collectors in buying physical editions. There are even physical releases of indie games that normally don't get major distribution that way. But again, these are largely collector's items. They're often very expensive. So it is increasingly niche. Frank, beyond just the joy of playing these games, why does preserving games matter? Well, I mean, that's basically asking why video games matter, right? And, and, what we often say here is that video game history is human history. Video games are just inherently a part of our culture and they have been for, I don't know, 50 years, you know, and, and um, we, we, we like to also say that when we're preserving games, we're, we're preserving very human stories. We're, we're preserving uh, uh, passion and, 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 and work that, that really affected people. Um, but also beyond that, um, just on a surface level, they are artistic expression. They're, they're as worthy as film or, or, or novels. Hmm. Well, let's head to a quick break here. When we come back, we discuss the options fans of retro games have to play discontinued titles. We'll be back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. 
In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from Jacob in Virginia. I myself am big into collecting old video games. I even have a number of old CRT TVs to play them on. But um, in terms of the retro gaming community, there's a lot of effort being made to preserve these old types of games that are being lost, whether it's because the online service is not being supported or the company that makes the game simply is just not selling it anymore. A lot has been lost and hopefully a lot more can be found because it's part of history. Frank, how much of video game preservation is on consumers right now rather than archivist organizations like the Library of Congress? Um, that's a really fascinating question. Um, I believe that the video game preservation ground zero, the, the origins of video game preservation were within the fan community. I mean, that's in fact where I came from. Um, I started as a, what you might call citizen archivist, um, someone who was taking it upon themselves as an individual to help, uh, preserve these titles, um, And, you know, unfortunately, um, depending on your definition of preservation, like it it still is uh, actively on the the consumer um, to maintain availability of of these very, very out of print titles um, in the uh, on the Internet, uh, possibly uh, illegal ways that we discussed earlier. Rebecca, in March of last year, Nintendo closed the digital storefronts for its Wii U and 3DS consoles. What do the shutdowns of these digital storefronts mean for the availability of games made for those consoles? Well, they not only mean that a lot of games that were released on those consoles are just no longer widely available. You know, you might still have physical copies of some of the bigger games, but there were certainly many games on both of those storefronts that were digital only. And so those games are just, if you didn't already have them downloaded on your system and still have a system sitting in your house, you just may not have access to them at all if they're not available elsewhere. Uh, But on top of that, uh, both the 3DS and the Wii U uh, had this really cool feature through Nintendo where you could go and Nintendo was releasing a lot of even older classic games and re-releasing them on the Wii U and 3DS through uh, the virtual console. Uh, And it was great. And a lot of people really enjoyed that feature when we're playing like these very old retro games that they couldn't play otherwise. Uh, But again, without that, you know, we're without the the Wii U and the 3DS shops open, you know, those, if you didn't already have them downloaded, they're just kind of gone unless by the goodness of Nintendo's corporate heart, they decide that they want to release them on something else. Well, Nintendo recently made Game Boy games available through Nintendo Switch Online. That's a subscription service. James, how common is it for studios to use a subscription model to make older games available? Nintendo's kind of the main one that does that. I mean, Xbox has a very deep catalog. So does PlayStation. Um, They don't go back quite as far as Nintendo does, but they often are a little wider. Nintendo curates a very selective list. Like, we're talking 
maybe 2% of everything that was ever on these platforms eventually will get onto the Switch versions. Um, recently, the Golden Sun games from Game Boy Advance were put on there. That's been getting people really excited. <laughs> Rebecca just gave the Yahoo sign on the, <laughs> yeah, on the Zoom. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I, grew, I grew up with that game, um, the first one. But, you know, to get back to those store closures, it's partly a strategy because then they can give you back the games repackaged, maybe updated with graphics. They just did this with something called Another Code, a game that was originally on the DS. It had a sequel on the Wii. Now it's a new Switch game with updated graphics. And the originals aren't really available anymore, at least not the way Nintendo would want you to play them. Justin emails, I recently bought a retro handheld game emulator with thousands of uploaded games. I have enjoyed it, but it just doesn't have the same feeling as using the original consoles. Justin, what is an emulator? Or I'm sorry, uh, Frank, what's an, what is an emulator? Sure. Um, emula- an emulator is essentially a tool for uh, making one piece of hardware uh, behave like a different piece of hardware. That, that's your base level definition of an emulator. And in terms of classic games, what that might mean is um, your phone might run an emulator that tells your phone how to behave like a Sega Genesis, for example. Um, and and it is um, essentially the best tool that we have uh, for putting classic games onto modern platforms because otherwise um, it requires kind of a complete rewrite of the game from scratch. Well, as we talked about earlier, an obstacle when it comes to preservation efforts is copyright law. Frank, give us a a little more explanation about how fair use regulations affect the accessibility of classic games. Well, I mean, in terms of, uh, in terms of just consumers playing games, um, you're only legal options uh, for, let's say, an out-of-print game, something in in that 87% pool, uh, would have to be that it exists physically and you can find a secondhand copy. That is your only option. So if, uh, as as kind of Rebecca alluded to earlier, like there's there's lots of games that don't exist on physical media. And if you wanted, for example, a 3DS game that was only ever distributed digitally, um, there is literally zero way for you to legally access that game. You can't even buy someone's um, used console and get it because it's tied to their account. It's just impossible at this point. Um, that's for consumers. And then and then for libraries and institutions like ours, it's actually very similar. Um, we, we can offer you access to games that are already in our collections, um, but you have to come on site. And uh, I know we have Golden Sun players here. Uh, if you didn't have access to Golden Sun, would you want to sit in a library nine to five Monday through Friday playing it? Or do you want to play it at home? So, so again, why can't libraries approach lending out these games the way they would a book or DVD? That's just the state of, of, the, of copyright law right now. Um, essentially, the industry's uh, representative lawyers have successfully argued um, that it would damage the video game industry um, if people could remotely access through a library system games for free. Um, This isn't an argument I agree with. I don't believe that libraries, uh, for example, destroyed the publishing industry when it comes to books, but uh, that is the current successful argument. And and it's one that, uh, we're hoping to um, to start uh, chipping away at. Rebecca, what do you make of that argument, especially if the alternative is that these games don't get played at all? 
I mean, I think it's ridiculous, and I I completely agree with Frank. I I I believe that at least one of the reasons why companies are so adamant on making this argument is specifically because of services like Nintendo's. You know, they have they have these these companies that have been around for a very long time and released games, you know, 20, 30 years ago, have these deep libraries of intellectual property that they suspect may one day be popular enough for them to make some money off of by re-releasing. And so as long as you can keep people from legally accessing that, then maybe one day you can you can take Golden Sun and you can put it on your service and and sell it to people again and again and again and then take it away kind of on a whim. So as long as you maintain that control, there's still an opportunity to make money. But that not only prohibits people from playing these very popular games until a company decides it's okay, but it also prohibits people from playing games that maybe weren't popular or maybe weren't even any good. But I would argue that we should preserve games that are less good or less popular just as much as we should preserve games that are probably going to get re-released someday. Well, and just for context, Nintendo Switch's online retro expansion pack has a $50 yearly subscription fee. James, when we when we think about video games as part of our cultural story, um, in some ways part of the historical record, why isn't there uh, an argument around approaching it more as as you know, something that, that's part of academic research, right? And the way you might look at a book or, again, a, a classic film. Well, there are video game studies courses at major universities. I took one. We played games uh, emulated online, usually through, like, the Internet Archive from the Atari. Um, so it's it's happening. But I think when games were being produced, they were often just viewed as toys. It's just an extension of, say, um, p- uh, pinball or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and while there have been efforts to collect and preserve pinball machines, arcade cabinets, for example, so much of the stuff was so ephemeral and felt so low culture. <laughs> and the people who were making these things maybe didn't have an eye for preservation either. That whole swaths of history have just been lost. Mm-hmm. And like you could liken this to the recording industry, to the film industry. There are plenty of original masters that have been lost, that have burned down. Um, but the hope and what Frank is trying to do and others like him is to stop that erosion from happening quite so fast in what is such a emergent and blossoming culture. All right, let's go to a quick pause here. Still ahead, the video game industry has experienced a wave of layoffs. That's despite it being more profitable than ever. How do the industry's labor issues affect the accessibility of classic games? We'll get to that after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. 
Let's get back to the discussion with this email we got from Alex. During the 80s, Pac-Man was the most popular game, of course, but my go-to arcade game was Tempest, an underrated game. The graphics were rudimentary, and the concept was simple, yet it was fast-paced and challenged my organizational skills and my ability to anticipate the enemy's next move, which I failed at almost every turn. I miss that game and the fact that this game was featured in Russia's music video for the song Subdivision, in my opinion, justifies its importance. Rebecca, 2023 was a massive year for gaming. We've talked about this on the show. Um, The big 2023 releases like Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, and Starfield. But the gaming industry is struggling when it comes to labor rights and layoffs. This week, Riot Games, they're the developer of League of Legends, announced that they're laying off 530 members of their staff. What's behind these layoffs? Uh, Probably a lot of very complicated factors, but I think... I think the big one that I, because this question has been being asked very frequently lately, uh, is that during during the pandemic and and maybe even a little bit before, uh, there were a lot of major gaming companies and and even like sort of double A or like kind of in between sized video game companies that were making a lot of risky investment bets. Uh, they were spending lots and lots of money on on new tech, on new projects. Uh, they were hiring up. They were. They were, they were spending lots of money, basically, and they were expecting big payoffs to come in 2022, 2023, 2024. And, and during the pandemic, that made some sense, I guess, uh, because there a lot of people were staying at home. They were playing lots of video games and companies were seeing their, their lines go up and to the right and seeing profits really roll in. Uh, but the industry has sort of stabilized since then. You know, it's not it's not doing poorly. Games are still wonderful and they're still selling very well, but it's not skyrocketing in the same way that it was. And so all these companies overinvested, didn't see the returns that they expected to see and are now having to figure out what they're going to do to, you know, bring bring value to shareholders. And it turns out that the answer in a lot of situations is lay a bunch of people off. And James, how how would you compare these layoffs to video game layoffs in, in the past? Is this year unique to you? Yeah, it is unique, namely because we're here talking about the cultural significance of retro games. Like game gaming as a hobby as an art form continues to increase its currency and its relevance. And so then it feels very jarring to hear about hundreds of people laid off at one of the biggest game companies in in the world. Uh, But on the other hand, this is a cyclical uh, industry. People are often hired um, with the promise of full-time work, knowing realistically that they might have two years here and three years there. That's not to justify what companies do because, again, it often comes down to trying to make your balance sheet look better for investors at the end of a fiscal quarter. Um, and there are labor and union efforts afoot to try and stabilize this so that there isn't so much of an incentive to just bring on a bunch of people and then let them all go within even a couple of months if the current project isn't working out. Well, we got this email from Noah who says, I'm curious what reasons might prevent a game from being re-released, be they legal or otherwise. I imagine licensing and availability of source code are primary concerns, but are there others? Frank, what can you tell us? Um, yeah, those are really, really big concerns. Um, I, I wanted to find source code because I think that's a term probably a lot of listeners wouldn't be familiar with. Um, so any, any computer and, and, and a video game system is a computer um, speaks a very particular language. Um, you know, just think of it in terms of human language even. And um, so 
the source code is speaking to the the computer essentially in its direct language. It has to be, you know, it has to be converted into that language. Um, if we have that original source code, we can then more easily convert it into a language for a newer system, for example. But without that source code, we're kind of left having to uh, recreate or like we, we kind of talked about earlier, emulate. So that is a really big challenge. Um, but um, another challenge that, that we've seen, um, you know, especially back when I was in uh, the, the publishing industry for classic games, uh, was the rights are just a mess for most of video game history. Um, we just, in a lot of cases, cannot substantiate um, the legal ownership of some titles. Um, and, and even when we can, sometimes those titles uh, had, for example, uh, voice acting whose contracts are lost to time, right? Like, like sometimes we can't um, clear up those rights. Um, Hollywood, for the most part, hasn't had this problem. Like they, they sort of figured out early um, how, to, how to tie up those rights. And, um, you know, for better or worse, Hollywood was uh, a system where like five companies owned everything, right? Um, video games are kind of becoming that now for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but for most of video game history, it was more like dozens, hundreds of disparate companies that would just go out of business and their business records would go with them. So that's a really, really big part of it. And then finally, even when things are easy, even when we have the source code, for example, um, like porting a video game to a modern platform um, sometimes is not like expensive, expensive, but there is always a cost involved. And and the retro video game market um, is not a very large market. And so uh, it, it's, it's not as cheap as putting, you know, an old movie on Amazon or something, right? Like it, it's significantly more expensive and risky than that. And, and often the cost analysis from a company's perspective says that it's just not worth the risk uh, to put old games back in print. Well, James, it makes me wonder how much demand is there? for access to retro video games? Well, there's always going to be demand for Mario and Zelda and StarCraft and, and, and big games like that. But for a lot of lesser known titles, even something like Golden Sun, like we've been kind of praising it because Rebecca and I share some nostalgia for it. Um, but while that can drive some people to pick up Nintendo online subscription service, really what they're selling is the entire package. They're like, you might recognize a couple of these titles, so why not pay $50 a month? It's not even the cost of a big AAA title, and you can play all of these then. And maybe you don't. Maybe you just have warm fuzzies knowing that you could. So, yeah, it is a niche market, but um, the biggest of them, as we were talking about with remasters and remakes, I mean, those are going to continue to print money. Uh, like, that's why... Um, like the Mario 3D collection um, had a limited run from Nintendo, the one that gathered up Super Mario Galaxy and Super Mario 64. Like you couldn't get that um, for a super long time because Nintendo knew by creating an artificial sense of scarcity around the release, they could jack up um, interest in it. Well, James, we talked about re-release video games. What games do you hope to see re-release soon? Uh, or at least draw a story, which will probably never happen. Um, <laughs> and then other kind of strange RPGs from the past, like the Icewind Dale games that sort of were part of the Baldur's Gate renaissance in the late 90s and early aughts. Um, those got remasters, but there's all sorts of strange little titles. Uh, I was just watching a video about how there was this incredible game on the Sega Genesis, a largely forgotten console that went on to influence a lot of creators, but had almost no footprint in North America. Like there are, there are plenty of games like that. Um, 
in this case, the name of that game is, uh, I think, Dragoon Saga, um, that deserve a wider audience and deserve to influence more creatives. Rebecca, what about for you? Any games you hope to see re-released soon? Oh, I'm with James on the weird RPG train. Uh, I got really into Moon, which was another game that actually inspired Toby Fox. And they re-released that a couple of years ago uh, in the West after it had only ever been available on like PS1 in Japan. So I was stoked about that. That's a really weird RPG. But if I had to pick one game that I wanted to see come back that I don't think is available anywhere right now, bring back Magi Nation. Weird monster catching, trading card game. Super into that. It was on the Game Boy Color and I've never seen it anywhere else. Frank, briefly, game that you would love to see come back. Uh, I'm going to cheat and not do a specific game. I'm going to say that um, the the sort of early computer-based stuff, I'm thinking of like your Carmen Sandiego's and your Oregon yes! Trails and things like that, um, <laughs> is something that I think is no longer part of the video game history canon because of its lack of re-releases. So I'd like to see more uh, representation of the parts of the industry that didn't survive into modern forms like Nintendo did. Well, I just want to mention for those who who are interested, you can find online versions of Oregon Trail that you can play and with all of the joy <laughs> that comes along with, with and that the game de- and, and the, the dysentery and, and the snakes, yeah. all the things. We've been speaking with Frank Cifaldi. He's the founder and director of the Video Game History Foundation. James Master Marino, he's gaming lead at NPR and a producer at Here and Now. And Rebecca Valentine, a senior reporter at IGN. Rebecca, James, Frank, thanks for speaking with us. I want to wrap up with some messages from you. Ellen emails, just like Jen White, Centipede is my favorite game of all time. I can still hear the sound of the Centipede one winding down to the bottom of the screen. And Matthew emails, I used to play Harvest Moon Animal Parade on Wii. In it, you would adopt animals and have to take care of them. We had a cow and named her Cinnamon. It became something of a daily habit, but now I find myself worrying about Cinnamon, thinking I should log in and check in on her. Makes me a little sad. Well, yes, check in on Cinnamon, Matthew. Today's producer was Arfie Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.